Hi, and welcome to Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is in the shoe business. So, welcome, Tim. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, I'm Tim Little, and I'm the owner of Grenson Shoes, um, a, a business that started in 1866 in Northamptonshire and has been a traditional English shoemaker ever since. So... You're the owner of Grenson. Grenson's been around for ages. You haven't been around for ages. How did you get into the shoe business? Um, it's a, it's quite a long story. Um, but I originally the first job I ever had on leaving university was um, in believe it or not accountancy, um, and I went to work for a company called what's now called KPMG, which is one of the big accounting firms. And it was the worst job that could ever have, um, that I could ever have chosen for myself because it was completely wrong. I was completely wrong for it. Um, and I lasted seven weeks before I realized that I needed to get out and do something completely different, something a bit more creative. Um, so at the time I was living with my sister, uh, in London and <clears throat> she was in the advertising business and every night she was coming home and getting ready to go out to some social event or some client dinner or, or whatever, or some launch somewhere of something glamorous. And I was coming home and reading my accountancy books and I thought, this has got to change. I quite like the look of this advertising business. This looks great. So um, I got a job in advertising, and for the next 10 years, um, I was in advertising. And for eight years in London and two years in, in New York. Um, and basically, my, my role was very much, I was an account man, um, which meant that I was managing uh, various different businesses, client businesses, um, and what we were really all about, the agencies that I worked for, was all about brand, what you'd call these days brand management. So although we were writing ads and we were doing ads and producing ads for people, TV, radio, uh, posters, whatever, magazines, newspapers, um, we were also in a much broader sense advising people on their brand um, and how their brand should operate who their target audience was, what the tone of voice should be for those brands and what have you. And my key accounts were um, people like Timberland Shoes, um, Harrods, uh, Porsche Cars. So I tended to specialise a bit in um, luxury or premium brands. Um, and then, But then towards the end, the last four years or five, nearly five years, um, I ran the Adidas business um, worldwide from London. So I spent four to five years on a plane traveling all over the world, visiting various Adidas officers um, and helping them to turn around from what had been a disastrous. So we're talking 1992 when we were appointed, when we won a pitch to do the, to run the business. And we, this was at the, on the end of um, a period where Nike had completely taken their business away from them um, and really taken away the hearts and minds of younger people who were much more interested in this 
exciting, irreverent American brand than they were what they what felt like an old fashioned, fairly tired, quite serious um, European or, or German brand. Um, and Adidas quite simply said, we want to get those people back again. We want to be cool again, but we don't know. We need to, we need help. You know, we need help and advice. So that was four years of the most exciting time in advertising for me. By far and away, it was it was wonderful because we were involved in everything. We would sit in on product development meetings. Um, I would mix with the people who were who were designing product, who were briefing in new product. We would sit with sportsmen and women, um, talk to them about their needs and and what, how we could better um, create product that 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 helped them in their particular sports. And so it was incredible from, you know, in advertising, you kind of take your chance and you might be advertising toilet paper. And and the idea is that you, um, you know, whatever you're advertising or dog food or whatever, it doesn't matter what you're advertising. You should come at it with the same enthusiasm. And, and, um, and it's about the brand and it's about selling an idea to, to the consumer. And it doesn't matter what the product is. For me, it did matter what the product was, um, and when I when I landed on Adidas, I eventually, because it was such a huge account as well, I managed to shut out all of my other accounts. I managed to pass them on to other people and say, "I'm just going to do this." And for the last three years, I did Adidas and nothing else, and I absolutely loved it. It was amazing. Um, so. You can all, I mean, the two, two of the brands I mentioned there, Adidas and Timberland, both shoe brands. And um, the kind of light bulb moment for me came with, in terms of shoes, with falling in love with Adidas, falling in love with the process of from start to finish. So the process of talking to a tennis player about their tennis shoes and how much those shoes worked or didn't work or what we could improve on them or was it about stability or was it about lightness or whatever. seeing going from that meeting through product development through prototyping through sitting down and writing the story and how we could present this story to um, a tennis player or or even you know anybody who how we could tell the story of the development of the product and how it was going to work for the game um and that was that whole process all the way through to actually writing an ad, the product being launched and the ads running and us looking at the sales and seeing how well it was doing. That entire process I fell in love with. And on other clients where the client has developed a product, most of the time in advertising, the client's already developed a product. They've been through all of that consumer stuff. And they sit down and say, here's our product. Um, can you do some ads for us? And you go away and you have a written brief and you look at it and you come up with some ads. And, that you know, that part, that only being part of that tiny bit, the end bit of the process, I suddenly realized was the thing that I was missing and wanted to be involved from the start to the finish. Um, and then, of course, the other big part of all of that is the is the fact that it was shoes and I love shoes. I always loved shoes. Um, so that was quite special. 
but then the, I guess the biggest part of it, the bit that really made me think, come up with an idea for what I could do myself, was I would sit in these meetings and there was so much would go into the development of the product and looking at materials and colours and soles and um uh, uh, how how a product looked, how it performed, how the lacing system worked, and then how to communicate that with with, with a potential um, consumer. That was so exciting to me. And then one Saturday, I'd, I was back in London, and I thought I loved traditional English shoes, and I went to um, a quite well known shoe shop in London in Knightsbridge to buy myself I needed a new pair of black toe cap Oxfords and I went into this shop and uh, I'd recently been into Nike town in America which was this kind of theatre of experience sporting experience with videos and films and events and talks and you know and then I went into this shop in Knightsbridge to buy a pair of shoes and I was spending three to four times what I would have spent on the pair of Nike shoes or Adidas shoes. And the experience was so dull and uninteresting and tragic. And I thought, hang on a minute, what if some of this kind of enthusiasm for the product, which is an amazing product, this made in Northampton, um, handmade, um, bench made kind of beautiful leather product where where's the theater where's the the guy who was serving me looked bored and was yawning and had a, a an appallingly dreadful suit on that needed a good old dry clean and a, you know and when I asked a few questions about that, that there was a cordovan shoe and there was a, an, a a normal calf leather shoe and they were the identical shoe but one was in cordovan one was in calf and I asked a question about that. Why is this so much more expensive? And he couldn't answer it and he had no idea. And I just thought, hang on a minute, this is, this is a, such a shame. You know, if just a little bit of, the, of that enthusiasm from the sports shoe business was injected into the, um, into, the, into the traditional shoe business, if you like, the hard shoe business, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it, it could be really interesting and you could be a younger guy who was like 30 um, might really get engaged with it instead of just thinking, well, I, I've got a decent, I've got a proper job now and I need a pair of proper shoes. So I'll grin and bear it and go in and pay a lot of money. And uh, but I've, that's what I've got to have or get a cheaper version, which is worse because the cheaper versions tended to look awful. So um, that was the moment really. And I thought, I'd love to take the, the first line that kind of came into my head was um, English shoes without the cobwebs. And I just had this idea of I'm going to start a shoe company with shoes that are made in Northampton or Northamptonshire, bench made shoes, but I'm going to make them more relevant. I'm going to um, experiment with different colors and materials and soles but still keep all of the good stuff, which was the craftsmanship, some of the traditional styling, um, the, the longevity of the, the product, that you could make a product that would last a long time. But most importantly, the thing that's always been part of my, my thing, if you like, is having a product that gets better the more you wear it, um, not worse. And, and the one thing that the Northamptonshire at the time could teach 
a sports shoe company was the the sports shoes that you buy get worse very quickly and very quickly become tired and old and and they fall apart or whatever and they lose their shape but the Northampton shoes just got better the more you wore them and the more you polished them and the more you looked after them and they 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 adopted the shape of your foot because of the way they were made um so so that was it so i i looked for a shop um i found um a shop in the king's road um as one journalist once described it the arse end of the king's road which was very kind of him um and it's down the very far end of the king's road in the just on the other side of the chelsea fulham border so technically in fulham um although i like to call it east chelsea uh, west chelsea um so and i opened a shop in 1997 and had a very small collection of traditional english shoes but on slightly more interesting last and with interesting stories um and the first shoe i did that that was kind of i'd taken from um it's quite a well-known kind of style nowadays but it wasn't around at all at the time and that was a hole cut which was a shoe i found this i found this story about this shoe that was called a hole cut which was made out of one piece of leather um just with one seam in it and a difficult shoe to make and an expensive shoe to make because of the wastage in the skin when you're cutting it and i thought wow that's such a beautiful lovely story that it's only a real craftsman and a real really good factory could make a shoe like that incredibly simple and beautiful um, and that was the first kind of shoe that took off for me, um, and I started to sell. So um, that was that was the start of the shoe business. I read somewhere that even from a very very young age, you had a, an eye for the shape of the shoe. Yes, um, I, I, it was after I'd really started, and I remember um, uh, I was talking to my mum, and and she said, um, of course, you know, when I used to take you get your shoes at the school shoes at the um uh, co-op in long eaton um which coincidentally i lived just around the corner from the sunspell factory where the sunspell factory is now in a town called long eaton which is in the midlands um and um she said yeah whenever i used to take you to get your school shoes i used to dread it absolutely dread it because they had this wall of shoes um, with the old ladder on wheels, you know, that, that the, the shop assistant would um, move the ladder across, go up, go up, get the pair of shoes, bring them down. Da, da, da. And as always with children's shoes, um, they never have the size or they never have quite. And so you would say, can I have that shoe there, please? And they'd go off up the ladder and come down and say, um, I'm sorry, we don't have that one in your size, um, but we do have this, which is similar, or we have the same shoe in a different colour, or we have um, the same colour, but a different style, you know. She'd always come back and and say, I don't have that shoe, but I do have this, and it's very similar. And my mum says that, you know, at the age of about seven or eight, I'd say, I don't want that one, you know, in a, I, I, in a precocious way, I guess it sounds like now, but it, it was, um, I'd say, no, I don't like it. I don't want that one. And my mum would say, why? What's wrong with it? It's the same as the one you, it's not, it's, it's more pointy or it's more round or it's a bit flatter or it's a, I don't like the look, you know, 
And she said it was a nightmare and I was really, really fussy about having exactly the right, the right shoe. Um, and so I guess it, it's something you're kind of born with on certain products and certain things that are important to you that you love. And for me, it was always shoes. And I, I'll never forget, I mean, to this day still, when I open a shoe box, the first thing I do is smell, is take a deep breath and smell um, what's inside. Because you used to be in the co-op in those days and she would open the box and you immediately could smell the shoe. And it was a lovely thing. It was the smell of newness and product and, and what have you. I've since learned, by the way, that that smell that most people attribute to being leather is normally actually a lot of the smell is actually various um, glues and um, cements and stuff that they use. That every you know even in a in a handmade um, traditional shoe, there are little bits of things to hold the linings together or whatever. So it's a mix of different things, but that lovely strong um, leather smell as well. Um, and you know, so yeah, it goes right back to to when I was very young. So as a designer now, this is just a little diversion, do you have strong feelings about how the shape of the shoe should be relative to the shape of a foot? Well, the, the shape of the shoe generally is um, absolutely crucial so that it has, for me, it has to look just right. So I can see two um, wingtip brogues from two different brands, for example, and one I absolutely love and the other I really couldn't wear. I, I would hate because it, it's just the last doesn't quite look the right shape for me. Um, and that's an aesthetic thing. That's not about comfort. I, what I'm talking about is exactly how the quarters are cut. And sometimes the quarters are too far forwards or too far back. Um, sometimes the toe cap's a little bit too short or it's a bit too long. It breaks in the wrong place. So I'm very, very finickety um, about all of those details from an aesthetic point of view. The, the size of the stitch, the thickness of the sole, um, the size of the heel can completely put... Sometimes the heel on some shoes is just a little bit too big. It's like one lift too big and it just looks wrong. Um, so from aesthetic point, an aesthetic point of view, it's absolutely crucial. From a fit point of view, obviously... If shoes don't fit, we don't sell them um, and they're uncomfortable and nobody loves a shoe that doesn't fit them very well. It doesn't matter how much they loved it in the shop. If they wear them and they don't fit perfectly, they they learn to hate the shoe very quickly because it's, it's, you know, as, as there's an old army saying that always spend good money on your shoes and your bed because if you're not in one, you're in the other. And, it, and you're in a pair of shoes all day, every day. You're putting your entire weight through those shoes and your feet are incredibly sensitive. They're one of the most sensitive parts of your body. So if the shoe isn't perfect and the perfect fit for you, um, it's incredibly uncomfortable and it makes you really quite unhappy. Um, so, so the fit is really important. But obviously, what's so difficult about designing shoes to fit really well is that everybody's feet are so different, different shapes, not just different lengths, which people assume, well, there's a 10, you're a 10 and I'm a nine and you're an eight, you know, but the width of the, the foot, obviously, combined with the length, um, 
the even the shape of the toes. So some people have um, a very big, big toe, long, big toe, and then their toes slope back quite steeply um, from there. Other people have a very square foot where the, the toes are almost as long as the big toe. So people who have a squarer foot, um, they need a much wider toe box and they struggle with a shoe that's more pointy at the toe um, and they have to go down a half a size or a size to accommodate that extra space in the toe box, for example. So it's very, very complex um, and it, it's very difficult when you do um, design and, and make shoes because you, you hear a lot on, on um, social media or you hear in the store or whatever or it even, you know, anecdotally at, at a dinner party or something, or people will say to me, oh, um, I wear such and such a shoes because they're the most comfortable shoes in the world. You know, they're the, they're the, they're the only shoes that, that are really comfortable. And it's like, well, no, that particular shoe that you bought from them happens to fit your particular foot really well. There'll be somebody else who's got the same size feet as you who will put that shoe on and they'll be the most uncomfortable shoes they've ever had in, in their life, you know. But people assume that if it fits me and it's comfortable, it's comfortable for everybody. Um, and occasionally somebody will say to me, I, I love to buy your shoes, but they're uncomfortable. And and I say, well, w w what? tell me exactly. what what Well, what they do is they pinch me on the little toe. So, okay, so tell me which lot. Oh, it's this lot. So, well, what you need is you actually need a G-last. If you put the G-last on, I guarantee you they'll be comfortable and you'll love them. You, what you're doing is you're buying the wrong last or you're buying the wrong size. You're half a size too small. If you're in the shop with me now, I guarantee I could find a pair of shoes that you would walk out the door and love. So, um, yeah, fit. once you get me going on fit, um, it's one of the most challenging <laughs> things for a, for a shoemaker. And it's something I, I, I get you know, kind of I talk about it a lot because I kind of think if I design shirts or, or um, jackets or whatever, there's so much more margin of error because I've got lots of shirts that all seem to fit fine, but I bet they're all, I bet some of them are, are, are an inch different or, a, you know, or a longer or shorter or different across. Um, but there's, there's more margin of error because they're, they're looser, there's more room in them, they stretch, they, you know, but with a pair of shoes, um, if they don't fit, they don't fit. That's it. Um, so, yeah, big subject. That's the thing. Uh, a, a shirt that is a size too large wouldn't be a problem, but a shoe that's a size too large would just be rattling around on your foot. So, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the shoe that's too large, it will be rat your foot will be moving about. And if your short foot moves about, it bashes against the, the inside edges of the shoe. Um, and it's almost more painful than a shoe that's slightly too tight. Now, getting back to when you started the Tim Little shop, I imagine at that time you were having shoes made by various factories in Northamptonshire. Yes. Yeah. Um, I started off with um, I started off with a shoe called White and Co. of Earls Barton, who were a small factory, um, and they made a variety of different things. But they had a guy there. Um, who kind of ran the factory. It was a guy called Tony Botterill, and um, he ended up coming to be the head shoemaker at Grenson. Um, I hired him after he retired from White & Co., and White & Co. eventually closed. 
um, as did so many of the Northamptonshire shoe factories. But um, I started off with them and they were great because they were very accommodating and anybody starting a tiny business like that will know that working with a factory is very, very challenging when you're only placing small orders um, and when you're also asking them to do things that are different from the way they normally do them. So they would be used to, um, you know, a, a customer coming along and saying, you know, I want a black toe cap Oxford. And they'd say, yeah, well, we've got this one here that we already do. Would you, um, uh, we'll just put your logo in it. And, you know, that's that's the kind of business they would do. And I, but I would come along and say, I'm not going to order that many shoes because I've only just started. But I want, I'm going to do my own, I'm going to bring my own last that I'm having made um, in, at a last maker in Northampton. And um, I'm going to source my own leather. And I want um, certain things done a different way. I want to change the way we do the eyelets. I want to change the lace of it, you know. And so it was very difficult to work with factories. And that you can do that when you're really big. But when you're really small, they're so not interested. Um, and it was very difficult. And a lot of the big factories turned me down. A lot of the famous ones um, turned me down. Some didn't even respond to, to letters and what have you. And some some were quite honest and said, to be honest, we get a lot of uh, kind of ex, you know, Cordwainer students and what have you who come along. And to be honest, they're a pain in the neck because... They they ask us to do loads and loads and loads of development work, and most of them never survive. They never get anywhere. They run out of money and they disappear. And so we don't tend to do it, you know. So it's quite difficult. So, but whites were very accommodating, and I did a lot of development, and and that was good. And then um, I worked eventually crossed over into Alfred Sargent, and they ended up doing most of my shoes. And then I did a few things with a couple of other people. Um, uh, I used to get a belt shirt made by Trickers. And I used to get um, a shoe made by a company called Technic, which is now, again, gone, but was a wonderful old shoemaker. And I'd get a few bits and pieces made in different places, like, like I'd move around where I could. And as I got a bit bigger... Um, it was a bit easier to persuade people to work with me. In fact, they'd start knocking on my door a little bit. So um, that was much better. But yeah, that's that's how we started. And then also um, I started doing bespoke quite early on as well. So the shoe, the last maker is called Springline in Northampton. They're the last ones left in Northamptonshire. They're the last ones left. Um, I, I originally started with a company called Mobs Miller, and they disappeared and Springline became the only ones left. And then I started doing lasts with them and bespoke lasts as well. And we started making bespoke shoes, handmade bespoke shoes. Um, so, um, yeah, I've done work with quite a few different factories. Uh, ultimately as well, I then started doing, um, doing some various things in Italy, just outside Florence, where I would um, thought, a lot of my customers were saying, would you do a sneaker? Why don't you do a sneaker and a casual shoe and a boat shoe? And a, and I thought, well, why not? I'll keep the English traditional welted shoes I'll make in England. And the anything else that I think is appropriate and I'd like to do, I'll get that done in Italy. Um, so 
for a good 10 years or so that's what I that's what I did am I right in thinking that there are a lot fewer traditional shoe factories in Northamptonshire now than they were 20 years ago oh crikey um there are probably there's only about eight to ten left now um and there used to be they used just in Rushton. So Rushton is a town in Northamptonshire where Grantson is based and also Alfred Sargent and Sanders are based um, and Dr. Martin, funny enough. Um, but in Rushton alone, and Solivar, so, exactly, uh, MPS. And it, in, um, in Rushton alone, I think there were at, at some point in, in the kind of early mid-century, there were um, over 100 shoe factories, I think, in Rushton alone. I haven't got the actual numbers, but it was an enormous business. Um, it dominated the county of Northamptonshire. And the, the, the county, the city of Northampton was a very successful, wealthy city. Um, and then it dwindled and dwindled. Um, it, it, like many, like many stories of, of British businesses like that, manufacturing businesses, it started out in the Industrial Revolution. And, and Grenson started with a guy called William Green. And Grenson is Green and Son shortened into a brand name. So it was William Green and Son, and they shortened it to Grenson. Um, and William Green started out the old-fashioned way of he would get orders from London, come back, buy the leather, and then take the leather round to the workers' houses who would cut it. He'd pick it up. Then he'd take the cut pieces of upper around to the closers' houses, and they would stitch them together. And then the Industrial Revolution came along for factor- and factories were built and machinery was created for Goodyear welting and for making shoes. And everything went into into factories and business took off because suddenly the shoe could be almost half the price of what it had been for the same quality because it was being made in a production line. Um, And there were incredible economies of of scale created for the same quality. Um, So then the business took off and the the shoe factories took off and got bigger and bigger. Um, And then the war came. Um, First World War came and they became incredibly um, uh, bizarrely successful through the war because they were making shoes and boots for soldiers. Uh, And then the Great Depression between the two wars and then the Second World War um, was the biggest production time ever for Grenson. And it was enormous. Um, and, And the factory was absolutely booming, making um, shoes for um, all of the all of the British soldiers and lots of other um, soldiers around the around the world as well. So and then, but then from then on, after the war, it's been a tale of um, production moving overseas, um, costs going up in the UK, and and then more recently, a move towards a casual styling and what have you. So the factories um, have dwindled, and bit by bit, they've they've disappeared um and only really well only obviously um by definition the best ones are left um and they they do a very good job the factories that are there now um but it's tough and it's still tough for them it's not there's by no means guaranteed that that they'll all be around um in another 10 years time 
um, it's really hard. You get the impression that the sort of interest in British traditional British shoes is going down over time, or is it something that goes a bit up and down? Um, I, I think that the, there's a there's a huge change in the way people dress, and in particular, um, in, in our case, in particular, in the way men dress. And most of the traditional English shoe business is menswear. Um, and there's an enormous. It's not. It's pretty obvious to say it now, but. Um, you know, my son is 21 and he wears sneakers every day. Um, he, he doesn't, never goes into a shop. You know, it is a completely different world um, for that age group. But even my age group, you know, I go to meetings and people are always pretty much casual now. Even in the city, if I have a meeting in the city of London, um, a financial meeting or whatever, even if I go to my lawyer's office, Often, you know, my lawyer will be wearing um, a polo shirt and, a, and chinos or whatever, um, or at least maybe maybe a jacket with, with a uh, with a polo shirt or, or 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 a but rarely a tie. So you know, um, traditional English shoes um, are part of that look and are part of that outfit and that code, and therefore, as that's dwindled and that's gone down. It's meant that, that there is less demand, definitely, and it's become more of a niche business. Um, and it's become more of a... And the, and the shoe factories that are left, really, are the ones that are have become a niche, niche luxury businesses. So if you go back 30, 40 years, when there were hundreds of factories, they, those factories were making everyday shoes for an everyday person. So... It didn't matter who you were, if you were um, working class, middle class or upper class, you needed a pair of black toe cap Oxfords to go to work in or black brogues or black derbies. And um, you would go out and you would buy a pair and they were probably made in England, say, in the 1960s, 1970s. They were made in England and you could buy a cheap pair or you could buy an expensive pair, but they were all made in England. And these factories were making everyday pair of shoes with it. Now what's left is just the factories who make the very high end. They're sold as luxury. They sold the story of how they're made and the craftsmanship and everything. And that's that's the kind of business it is. Um, and the people who do it, the famous brands that we all know, including Grenson, uh, do it incredibly well. And the reason they're still around is because they make beautiful shoes and they've also managed to tell the story quite well. And they have nice stores that you go into and, 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 you know, people can buy into what they do and believe it and realize that they're buying a product that is beautifully made and will last a very long time. And therefore there's a hidden value in it that I can buy these shoes and they might be 450, 500 pounds to buy them but they might last me five times as long as the cheaper pair. And, and ultimately, um, they, they're good value. Um, and so that's where we kind of are today. Um, so it, it's very much a niche business now, English shoemaking. And um, it, it, it's, uh, it's an expensive shoe to make, expensive product to make. And therefore, it's very, very high end. And at some point, you realised that the Grenson factory was for sale and set things in motion. 
as I understand it. Bit of a leap there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what happened? So I had my my business in in the King's Road, um, and I got a phone call from the uh, owner of Grenson. And oh, by the way, I have been making some of my Tim Little shoes were made at Grenson as well. Um, so I did a I, I actually did a high end range. I did my normal range, um, which is called Blue Soul. Um, uh, Alfred Sargent and then I did my high-end range which was called Black Soul and that was made at Grenson and that was closed channel oak bark soles and all that kind of stuff um, so I knew I knew them a little bit um, but the owner who I'd never met um, called me and said uh, he was actually the son of the owner who had just taken over the business and um he called me and said, could we get together? Um, he said he'd taken over the business from his father and it had gone through a period of um, uh, downward sales. Um, he felt it had lost its relevance. It was quite old fashioned. A lot of things needed changing. And he was in the city. He was a, a, a private equity guy. Um, and so his his way of doing things as all private equity guys do is they'll buy a business and then they'll bring in uh management they'll bring in people or somebody or person who can then change that business and um then turn it around modernize it whatever and then sell it on that's that's how they operate he'd bought it off his father and his father had owned the business for um his father had bought it off the last member of the green family in the early 1980s and had owned it up until the 2000s. And then um, the son had, had bought it off him, off his father, um, as his father was reaching retirement age and the son felt that the father should be slowing down and retiring and it was a, a tired business that was going the wrong direction. And so the son jumped in, um, got in touch with me and said, would I run the business for him? So um, it was a, a huge decision because the Tim Little business at that point, we were selling to people like Harrods, Selfridges, Liberty. I had a concession in Liberty. We were selling at Saks in America and Barneys and things. And it was, it was a good business. It was doing well, um, uh, but it was hard. Um, and but I knew Grenson really well, and I'd always, always, from my days in advertising and managing brands, I'd always loved the old traditional shoemakers, and I just thought I'm going to give this a go. I really fancy, you know, being inside a, a traditional English shoe factory and see if the thing I've tried to do with Tim Little, which is taking. Um, an old craft and modernizing it and making it more relevant. If I could do that with a brand, it, you know, it would be amazing. So I eventually agreed to do it and run the two things side by side. Um, but I quickly, after a few weeks of getting involved with Grant, I said to myself, actually, I'm going to give myself three months and I'm going to really get stuck in with Grenson for three months. I'm going to really, I'm going to be at the factory every day. And I was living in London. So it's like an hour and a half, nearly two hours drive to get there. I was going to go every day for three months. And I'm going to really get under the skin of this business. And then I'm going to decide, is this the right thing for me to do? Or is this a disaster? 
So, and I said this to the to the guy who was hiring me. I, I was honest with him because I didn't want to sign a two year contract or something, and it all be a mess. Um, and then, so we got I got to the three month period, and I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, "This is an absolute disaster. This is this is a business that needs complete overhaul." Uh, everything about it, the factory was falling apart, the building, it, it, it needed, other than the shoemakers, it needed new people, it needed um, salespeople, and it needed a um, whole new attitude, it needed new, it needed everything. And, you know, I sat down with the sales director and I said, can you give me a list of all the stockists? And he gave me a list. He said, here they are, they're, they're organized by by area, by county and by town, by city. So I started going through it and I thought, well, first of all, first thing I'll do is I'll have a look at London because I know London better than anything. And you can always judge how successful a brand is, I think, by how well it performs in the capital city because that's where it's most competitive. So I said to him, um, sorry, can you give me a hand here? Um, I think you've missed the section. There's no, the, the London section doesn't seem to be here. And he said, uh, ah, uh, we've only got one stockist in London, and that's a shoe repairer in North London. Um, so I didn't think Ouch. it was worth putting that on the thing. I said, Grenson has only got one stockist, and it's a shoe repairer. So not, not, you're not in Selfridges, you're not in Harrods, you're not in, you're not in any lovely little independents. Or, no, 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 we haven't been for a long time. No, not, not at all. And it was, so the distribution was all, and what they were basically doing was they'd got to a point which is quite, um, was quite certainly at the time was quite common amongst these old shoe businesses, was they would have an enormous stock of shoes in a big warehouse at the factory, enormous. And they would go to all these little old fashioned uh, menswear shops or family shoe shops or shoe shops in little towns all over the country, often in the countryside, a little town here or there, Morton in the Marsh or something like that. Um, and they'd have like that yellow stuff on the window that would stop the anything in the window getting faded. So it, it was like really awful. And you'd go in and they'd have four Grenson shoes on a shelf. They'd have a black toe cap Oxford, a wingtip, and they'd have a brown one and a, something and a loafer maybe. And then you'd say, um, oh, I'd really like those toe cap Oxfords. I'd love a pair of those, please. And they'd say, what size are you? I'd say size eight. And they'd say, OK, we'll get it in for you tomorrow. And then they'd ring Grenson and Grenson would have this enormous stock of shoes at the warehouse. They'd get the pair of size eights. They'd send them off to the retailer who would then call the customer. And that's how they did business. So it was a, an awful, like a totally and, and a lot of shoe companies did at the time so they'd have this thing called the in-stock service so retailers didn't have to stock any shoes they would just call up when they had a customer and Grenson would send them a pair had a, a team of five or six girls who were on the phones every day to all these little shoe shops sending out a pair and then if the customer didn't turn up they'd send them back and get a refund all the paperwork was done by hand you know um, often the customer would um, order two, the eight and the eight and a half. 
um, or whatever the, the likely sizes were, and then send one of them back. Um, some, if the customer said, yeah, I think I'm eight or eight and a half probably, and I quite like the brown and I quite like, oh, I'll get them all in. I'll get four, I'll get eight, eight and a half of the black. Net. So there'd be four shoes would be sent out, three would come back the next day and all the paperwork would have to be done back into, you know, and that's how, that's the state that they'd kind of got to. Um, and it, it, so after this three months of being there and seeing all of this, and this is, this is how, um sad it had become really that this great old shoemaker had got to the point where that's the only business that they'd really got uh i I thought i can't do this this is wrong i'm i it's absolutely you know it's going to take up all my time it's going to be exhausting and it's going to take years to turn it around but the thing I didn't realise was that the brand and the people in the factory and the craftsmanship and the fact that I had a pair of Grensons when I was 17 and da, 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 all this stuff and going into the factory every day and meeting them. And one of the old boys said to me, you know, we've been going downhill for years, but uh, I, we can do it. You know, we can do it if we get the. We just need the styling to be right. And we need it. You know, he said, oh, I never see anybody out in the street wearing shoes like the, you know, the, and I, it just, it had got under my skin and I just carried on and never stopped. Um, and so I was working for him, uh, and then three years later, we'd really started to, we'd completely reformed the brand, if you like. Um, we'd created new collections, we'd done new packaging, we'd, I'd got it into Selfridges, Harrods, Liberty, what have you, all that kind of stuff. And it was all starting to come back nicely. Um, and then the guy, the owner, said, I want to sell it. Uh, I want to move on. I've got other things I want to do. Um, will you help me sell it? Um, and to cut a very long story short, I said I said to him, God, I'd love to buy it, but I, there's no way I'll be able to afford it. And him being a, a, a private equity guy knew that the, the most valuable thing that you can have is somebody who really wants it, the thing that you're trying to sell. And the easy bit for him is the working out the money. If he can't afford it, it doesn't matter. You can borrow money, you can it, you can buy it over a period of time, you can structure it, you can do whatever. And we ended up doing a very, very fair deal between the two of us. Um, very sensible um, and it allowed me to take over the business. And it, it, it was just incredible. It was the inc- most scary thing I've ever done in my life um, on the day that, that we exchanged. Um, and I was the owner of the business. Absolutely terrifying, but the best thing I've ever done as well. So um, it, it's been great. And that was 2010 when, when I took over the business. And it was 2005 when I first started working for him. Since then, how's it gone? I know you moved into a new factory. Yeah. Um, the, the the first big thing, I think, that I had to sort out um, once I took over the business was that this factory um, really was falling down. Um, and it was a Victorian factory. It was beautiful. Um, you can picture it now, I'm sure. Um, and it was beautiful, and it was a classic shoe fa- Victorian shoe factory. Um 
but it, it had just been neglected over probably 50 years and had an enormous roof and the roof was leaking and the, the heating didn't work. And um, it, in the summer, it was like a greenhouse, boiling hot. In the winter, it was freezing cold. They used to wear, they used to wear like uh, two jumpers and a coat while they were making shoes. I mean, it was terrible, really. Um and so the first thing I did, when I took over the business, I knew that the, the building wasn't going to last long. Um, and so I agreed with him that I wasn't going to buy the, buy, the, buy the factory, the actual building, and that I would rent it until I could find something more appropriate. Um, and we were, I went the other way. I basically thought we're going to take all of the people, all of the machinery, absolutely everything, and just transplant it into a completely modern um, shell of a building that had showers, offices. Um, it was like just had everything that anybody could. It was warm. It was dry. Um, they have a locker room, a beautiful canteen, and everything was provided and what have you. Um, and so, yeah, we did that in 2013, I think it was. Um, and that's been a revelation because again, that was a big decision. I thought a lot of people would maybe criticize us for, from leaving the old Victorian factory and that that was part of the brand. Um, but I thought to myself, it, it's not part of the brand. What, what the brand is about is the people and the product. Um, and that's been handed down for over 150 years. Um, and that's what it's about. And that Grenson had actually been in three or four different factories over that time. And so no one factory was about the brand. The brand was about what we did. Um, and it's, it's worked really well. And it's much better, it's much easier to make a really good product in a really modern, warm, nice environment for people because they're happier. And, um, and they enjoy, when they're happy, they make lovely product. I can imagine the romantic notion of the old factory does mean something but really the the staff must have really appreciated moving into somewhere that didn't require extra clothing and uh, kept them warm and healthy. Exactly. They, they, they really did. You know, they really did. I mean, they were all a tiny bit sad when we left, but I went around and asked them all, you know, what, what, what they thought and whether they, if they were given the choice, would they stay? And not one single one of them wanted to stay. They were sad they were leaving because it was nostalgic, but they not one single one of them wanted to stay there. Um, it just wasn't uh, it wasn't a nice place to be um, every day when you're working hard. Um, so yeah, it was the right thing to do. You find it's easy to recruit uh, new people to work in the shoe industry. I mean, I'm thinking especially of younger people. Is it an attractive career path? No, it's it's uh, it's a very good question um, because it's the single biggest problem facing the the UK the UK shoe industry now. Um, certainly, the traditional shoe industry. Um, it's very very difficult to recruit. Um, it takes a long time to to train people up, uh, but persuading young people to come and do it is so difficult because. They might start off thinking, oh, I like the idea of being a shoemaker and have a, a kind of romantic notion of literally making a shoe by hand and cutting the leather and 
all of those kind of things, which is wonderful, which is fantastic. But the bit they don't understand until they start working is how a factory works. And a factory, of course, is is a, a production line. And if one person's not there, you can't make a shoe because it, it, the shoe stops at your, if you're putting the eyelets in, the shoe and you're not there, the shoe can't go on to the next part where the, the, the next uh, job, the polishing or whatever, until the eyelets are in. So if you're not there, the shoe doesn't get made. So that what that means, the impact of that is, everybody has the same holidays every year. Their holidays are set by the union um, and by the shoe. So the whole of the shoe industry have the same set holidays. Um, you have to be in every morning. There's no flexibility of saying, oh, I'm taking uh, my kid to school today. You know, I'm going to be in at 10, but I'll work a bit later. It's very difficult to do that because the factory doesn't work. Um, and finding young people who understand that, a lot of whom nowadays might want to work, say, in IT and can work from home in IT, especially since COVID, they're used to working from home and they might get up at five to nine in the morning, um, switch the computer on. They might, you know, go out for a couple of hours and then but do a couple of hours later in the evening, you know, when or they might work on the weekend because they can because it's just on a laptop. Well, you can't do that with a factory. And I think it's very difficult for people to understand that and get used to it and actually embrace it and enjoy it. Um, so recruitment is a major problem for the factories and a lot of recruitment over the last 10, 20 years in Northamptonshire shoe factories has been through cannibalizing, if you like, the factories that have closed down, hiring the staff that have left those factories um, as they've closed and the remaining factories taking on the people. Um, that there aren't, there, There's very little... Uh, recruitment of young new people brought in as apprentices and 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 you know um trained up um so so it's difficult i've painted a a very dark picture there we do have apprentices we've got um a, a three or four um young guys in the factory at the moment who all started with us from scratch but we've had a lot more that have come and gone um, and spent six months or a year and, and felt this is not for me and left. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And I think the ultimate, if, the, if there's ever an ultimate demise of our industry, it will be about struggling to find people to come and work in the factories and to enjoy it and, and to get, get out of it what the, the current guys do. I imagine in many ways it's also a pretty skilled job when I visited the factory and went from station to station around. I mean, it was quite clear by the speed and precision involved that this wasn't a sort of job where you could uh, be daydreaming about something else. I mean, you had to pay attention and be fast and accurate. So I imagine at the end of the day, you are quite tired. Yeah, very much so. It, it's quite intense um, and, and it's quite high pressure because also – uh, you're, you do have to move at the same pace as everybody else in the factory. Otherwise, you become a bottleneck again. Um, and that's a pressure. Um, but, but also the main thing, I think, is that 
one of the big pressures that I know people find is that you're handling and you're creating an expensive product. And it's quite easy for a mistake to mean that that product, that's not a sellable shoe anymore. If you let the shoe slip, and the further the shoe is through the factory, the more valuable it becomes. So the guy who's cutting the leather, if he cuts the leather slightly wrong, um, then it's just a bit of leather that he's wasted, even though that's expensive. Um, It's just a bit of leather. If a guy at the end of the process, let's say he's polishing the shoe before he puts it in the box and he drops it on the floor and it marks the toe, that shoe isn't sellable anymore. And by that stage, that shoe has all of the time of all those people and all that craft gone into it and all the materials, the sole and the eyelets and the insole and the all gone into that shoe and it's now a valuable um, product and he's just spoilt it, you know, and so that's a pressure as well. And to be doing that under pressure at the time, again, I'm, I'm making this sound um, darker than it is because the guys who work in the factory love it. And I think it's that it's feeling that they're so good at that and they're so practiced and they can do those jobs and they can do them at the right pace because they're good at them and they can, um, uh, and that they're not going to drop them because they know exactly how to handle them. And they've, they've learned that the hard way. Um, that, that I think that's why they love it. And they love the fact that they are the only person in the factory who can do that particular job. And they love the fact they're skilled and they have a skill that other people don't have. And, um, it's a it's yeah it's it's a really beautiful thing you know i think that they they really love what they do and they're very proud of what they do um and it's uh yeah but it but it's tough for for new people coming in to get to that point and it on some of the jobs it can take three or four years to get to that point on some of the jobs it can take two or three months but on the longer jobs you've got to be practicing basically for, for two or three years before you actually feel confident enough uh, and for the business to feel confident enough in you to actually be doing the job full time and fitting in with the rest of the factory. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, Let's continue on. You mentioned that when you moved to the new factory, you brought all the equipment over. Now, given that these are traditional shoes made in a traditional way, has there been much sort of new machinery brought in, any new processes, or is it still basically the same as sort of almost 150 years ago? It's almost exactly the same. So, so there are um, there are a few little bits and pieces that 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 help us have helped us to do various things. But but most of it is the same. I think one example um, of new machinery for us, at least, is that I I thought to myself a couple of years ago. I thought, why why can't why don't traditional shoe factories, Goodyear well-to-chew factories like us, why don't we ever make a sneaker? You know, instead of being seeing it as 
the people who made sneakers were were you know the devil for the for, for the guys in our factory sneakers were like oh how dare anybody ever buy or wear a sneaker and i sat down with them and said well what about making a really beautiful sneaker why why don't we why don't we make a sneaker in the factory a made in england proper made in england sneaker um and so we they, we tried and we started and the one piece of machinery we needed was a, a machine that would side wall stitch the um the the sole to the upper um and so we bought one of those in um and that and that that was um they learned how to use that they learned how to make the shoe in a slightly different way uh, and that that's been great because we now make this made in england sneaker uh and i i, I love it i love the fact guys who have been making a Goodyear welted shoe all their lives and have always thought of uh, the sneaker being the, the end of them, the, 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 the thing that would ruin their career, uh, they're actually embracing it and trying to make a better sneaker than anybody else. So, yeah, m- most of the machinery is the same. Updated versions of what we've been using for many years. Some of it is go, goes back as far as 1920s, I think. Some of the machinery, um, things like the toe laster. Uh, we used to use a very, very old toe laster, and we changed that to a kind of computerized version, which just helps the setup of the for each shoe. You have to do a various setup, and it just helps that, and it helps to remember the setup for each shoe, and you can store bits of information. Um, but other than that, it's really traditional, very traditional. Are the sneakers resolable? Yes, absolutely. So everything we make is resolable. Everything we make is repairable. Uh, we're even we're even starting, or we're, we're working on a project at the moment when your shoes are absolutely so worn out that you're you're not even going to get them repaired again. You're going to throw them away. That we say, bring them into us, and we'll get them back on the road somehow. We might, you know, have to stick a bit of rubber on the bottom and we'll sell them to somebody else for, for a, a, contribu- a charity contribution or whatever, like a vintage shoe. But we'll try and lengthen the amount of time that that shoe is out there on the road. Um, but, yeah, we do a lot of repairs in the factory, rebuilds, full rebuilds. And the sneakers in particular um, look fantastic when they're redone. It's kind of a game changer in the whole concept of sneakers given that usually we buy them, we wear them, we bin them, but being able to actually repair them and keep using them completely changes the view on sneakers as far as I can see it. Well, it, it should do. And I, and I think, um, you know, when you talk about the issues with sustainability and and specifically in the in the shoe business – businesses like us have such a tiny impact on the world from that point of view compared to the big sneaker companies the big sports shoe companies because they they are selling so much more product at such a lower price and it's very fashion based so there are, a lot of it is here's a new colorway we've changed the stripe or we've changed the swoosh or the whatever we've changed this we've changed that we're going to drop 2000 pairs and when they're gone they're gone and here's a special colorway for this and that so it's pumping lots of product in there and then there's absolutely nothing that you can do with them at the end when they are a bit worn out a bit tired 
um, you can't have them repaired either. So I I think that all we can do is, is treat our shoes and treat um, the world in the way we want to. And that is to make a pair of shoes that last as long as possible. And when you think it can't last any longer, we, we, we beg to differ and we'll make it last a little bit longer. And we'll we'll repair it. We'll refresh it. We'll do everything we possibly can. So, I think ultimately, there will be the repair culture does have to come to the footwear industry, and in particular the sneaker business, because that's where the most damage to the planet is is coming out of our world. Now, given the traditional nature of everything and the sort of quite narrow band of acceptable features and ways of doing things uh, i was curious about is there sort of room for innovation i remember when i visited the factory and i met the guy who came up with the triple welt sole which just seems such a splendid idea i mean are there more innovations possible um there are there are different types of innovations that that you can look at so um in terms of the actual way we manufacture a shoe there are some innovations that we can do. So, for example, we work with Craig Green on uh, on his collections. And, and as you know, he's a very avant-garde, very forward-thinking designer, menswear designer. And he's very challenging with his ideas about how we do things. A lot of what we've done with him in the past is almost like an inside-out shoe where all the seams are on the outside and, and what have you. So... There are things you can do. Um, you can play around with soles. You can play around um, with the way the sole is made, the way it's attached, various things like that. But I think the biggest area for innovation probably, or the easiest way of really kind of making things relevant, is materials and, and playing around with different materials. So to start with, we're doing a lot of work on sustainable materials and um, we're using some leather that's that's tanned in in olive uh, in olive uh, leaves basically um, it, it, it's the tanning process is for, for certainly for mass market shoes the tanning process is not great for the environment generally a lot of chemicals are used a lot of water is used um, we've started using a suede from Italy called Eco Suede, which is made with half of the water that normal suede is made from. Um, and you don't quite get the vibrant colour. But if you embrace the fact that it's slightly washed out kind of look to it, paradoxically, it looks washed out, a bit more washed out, even though um, it uses half the water. I haven't quite worked that one out yet, but. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation that we're we're doing in terms of materials, uh, in terms of recycled soles. We're using uh, recycled sneaker and EVA soles that are lightweight that go on the bottom of the welted shoes on some of the welted shoes. So a lot of it is materials, um, and uh, some of it is still in the manufacturing process. Um, and we're doing lots of little details here and there. We did a shoe. Um, for a company that you will know well called Norwegian Rain a few years ago. And they came to us and said, um, could you do a, a, a fully waterproof shoe? And we said, no, we can't, but we can do um, a water-resistant shoe. So we can make it out of a, a certain leather, a rubberized finish, and or that's tanned with oil that 
you know, repels the water. But ultimately, it's a Goodyear welter chew. And that means a lot of stitching. And where the stitching, there are holes. And that's where the water gets in. So we can't ever say fully waterproof. And they said, um, well, can you give it a try? <laughs> so <laughs> I sat down with the guys in the factory and said, look, you know, I've never asked you this before, but could you make a waterproof shoe? And there are companies that make waterproof walking shoes with um, breathable linings and stuff like that. Um, could you, you know, could we have a go? So they they looked at it and they went through all the various different elements. And yeah, we could put like a, a waterproof lining between the upper and the, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was always the sole and the stitching the sole and the other. And eventually they came up with this idea of getting this liquid rubber. So they went out to a local shop and they bought some um, bike tires, uh, you know, the inner tube for for bikes. Um, Mm -hmm. They bought some inner tubes and they put them in a pan and heated it up and melted it. And then they got a paintbrush and then painted the bottom of the, painted all the holes in the bottom of the shoe before the sole went on and then did it again. And this kind of rubber, um, then when it dried, created a membrane that was, uh, could you could sink it while it was, before it dried, you could sink it into the holes cover. And then they made a few pairs of shoes and they put them in, in a bucket of water, just up halfway up the shoe and left them. And after 48 hours, we had like blotting paper inside so that it would pick up any water at all that was coming through and they were completely waterproof so that was great that was like proper proper innovation and that's where the guys in the factory love being innovative they love a challenge and their craftsmen and craftsmen love to try something they haven't done before and you only have to pique their interest and let them go and off they go um so that yeah there's, there's innovation but a lot of it is materials these days I also saw recently you'd made some uh, boots from uh, recycled denim. Yes, another um, that was a little project. Um, somebody called Kelly Harrington, who is a um, uh, Instagram. Um, she's uh, her main thing is denim. She loves denim. She loves recycled denim. She loves um, denim brands and the whole thing. And she was a friend of the brand, and we, we, we'd known her for quite a long time, and she wore our shoes and everything. And we sat down one day and said, well, why don't you well, – could we um, could we make a shoe with you, uh, you know, something to do with what you do with denim and recycled denim and what have you? And she got all this denim together, these old cut-up jeans, bits of jeans that have been cut up and discarded for whatever reason out of a factory. And and a lot of them were actual jeans that have been made and then cut up. Um, and they, she sent the boxes of this stuff to the factory. And I said to the guys, can we, I want to try and make a pair of boots, or just a simple derby boot, out of these cuts but i want them all to be cut up and every single shoe or every single boot to be different from not just every pair to be different but every shoe to be different so if you buy a pair the left looks different from the right and they're completely random and you might get a bit of a pocket the the pocket from the jeans on the leg or you might get a rivet on on you know from the jeans on another bit what have you um so we did that and again innovation the innovation there was 
the cutting of it and the stitching of it that was the difficult part. Actually lasting it and making the shoe was easier once once the upper had been made. And they worked out that the thing to do was to patch it all together and stitch it all together into a big, almost like a big sheet of leather, and then cut it once it's all stitched together. Um, and then and that worked really well. And they looked amazing. They, they, they're incredible. Um, I loved it. But only a tiny project. It's not a commercial thing to do, unfortunately, because it's so much work and so time consuming. They do look great. Not quite my cup of tea, but we can talk about the <laughs> Harris Tweed version we'll make together afterwards. <laughs> Good idea. Um, how does vegan leather fit into the sustainability and environmental aspects? That's a very good question. Um, vegan leather uh, and sustainability are not are not ideal bedfellows in a way because the vegan leather, most of the vegan leather that's available, um, the, the, the vegan leather that looks or tries to look like classic calf leather that, that you'd know um, is made of a type of polymer, uh, plasticky polymer. So... Um, the normal stuff that's been around for years and years and, uh, and has made uh, non-leather shoes um, or leatherette as it used to be made and, and non-leather furniture or leather effect furniture and any kind of products that aren't actually leather um, but look like leather. That stuff is, isn't great. Um, it isn't ideal. Um, but nowadays there are new products that are getting better. So, the first thing you can do is you can make it, albeit the same, it's made out of the same stuff, but it could be recycled. Um, secondly, you can make it in a way that is recyclable so that the shoes can then be taken apart and recycled. Um, and then there's also quite a lot of, um, we use uh, a suede, uh, which is, it, and it's made out of ocean waste. So again, you can use recycled plastic to make this leather effect stuff, but ultimately it still has plastic in it. So it, it's very, very challenging. Um, and vegan, being vegan doesn't necessarily, you know, people sometimes confuse the two and they shouldn't be confused because they're two completely separate things. Vegan is about obviously not eating meat or not, not using products that, um, are from animals and that's not necessarily about sustainability because the the artificial materials usually have processes in them that are challenging for sustainability so um, yeah it's a very interesting subject and one that is being debated over and over and a lot of businesses out there at the moment who are working very hard to make more sustainable versions of um leather type looking product and it's it's quite interesting and i think over the next 10 years we're going to see a lot of really good developments in that area now you mentioned earlier that uh, the northamptonshire shoe industry had suffered because a lot of companies had sort of moved production offshore and i have seen people comment whenever grenson comes up that oh grenson's a garbage company they make uh, all their stuff in india or whatever now, having been to the factory, I know that that isn't true, but I know that you do also make some stuff abroad, I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. 
We do. We make um, we make in India and we make in um, uh, in Italy a little bit, but but mainly outside of the UK, it's mainly India. So yeah, again, this is one of my favourite subjects. So um, I could talk about this for about five hours. I don't know how how long you've got, but um, I'll try and cut it down a bit. Just nip out for the shopping while you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, so first of all, when I got to Grenson, uh, Grenson had been working with um, Indian production since the 1960s. The last member of the Green family had actually set up production of uppers in the 1960s in uh, India. And when I got to Grenson, 80% of all the business Grenson business was Indian made, certainly Indian made uppers, but in, in a lot of cases, Indian made shoes. So we, as a company, we had a heritage in of making stuff elsewhere. So I thought, well, I'm going to embrace that. And the reason I wanted to embrace it was because, um, first of all, I said, the heart and soul of our company is our factory. And that's our heritage that's where we get our expertise. That's our laboratory. That is everything. We're never not going to have a factory. Um, and, and so we spend an enormous amount of time, investment, money in running a factory, which you, we don't have to do. We could quite easily just put everything offshore and, and, and just do that. And it would be a lot easier, but we're never going to do that. We're always going to have a factory here, our own factory. Um, and then... I said to myself, okay, so this beautiful made product, Goodyear welted product, and we're going to design it in a more interesting, relevant way. We're going to be more innovative. We're going to make it more wearable to a younger audience. Um, we're going to do all these things. and But all the people I'm talking about who I think would love to wear that kind of product, so wear a Goodyear welted brogue, but a really nice one with an interesting sole or with some amazing leather or da, 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 all that kind of stuff. A slightly different shape to it, this, that and the other. Um, all of those, those kind of younger people who I think might be interested in this, they'll never be able to afford it because any shoe that is properly made in England, skin to box, is going to be 450 quid and more. You know, And if you look at the prices now of shoes, you've got, um, shoes at the top end that are over £1,000, £1,200 a pair. The main thing for me, for Grenson, was I wanted to do this new product, refreshed and interesting and creative. And, and I wanted to appeal to a younger audience because the Grenson audience at this point was like 60 plus. And I thought, well, why can't we be selling to a 30-year-old or a 25-year-old even? You know, But the one barrier to that is the price. And uh, if you look at English shoes, so you look at, say, now, for example, Church, who are the brand that most people uh, know because it's the most famous, uh, um, uh, recently put their prices up from £400 to over £700 Ooh. in one jump, just like that, just That's in one jump, in one go. Uh, and, and this is basically their owners saying – we we don't make enough margin on these shoes. We should be a luxury brand, position it as a luxury brand um, and upscale it, if you like, and make it luxury. 
Um, and, and, you know, and this is as a reaction to the cost of making a pair of shoes in this country, um, which I think is great. I think an expensive pair of shoes, there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But we wanted to have an alternative to it that was a price that was affordable. And so we said, okay, we've got this um, relationships in India. We know having made shoes in India or having made uppers and various bits in India for uh, many, many, many years, many years before me, um, that they can make an incredible product over there. Fantastic, beautifully made product over there if you have the right factory. And so, so, well, let's embrace it. Let's have a look at doing a collection of Goodyear Welted. We'll find the best factory in in the country and we'll make like a second collection, if you like, and we'll make it over there. Um, but what we'll do is we'll design it all ourselves. We'll put all the specs together. We'll buy the leather ourselves. We'll source the leather ourselves in Italy in Spain or Portugal or France, wherever we're currently, all the exactly the same current top end grade A calf leathers. And we'll make this collection over there and we'll send everything over. They'll make the shoes over there and that'll be that. And then the shoes that are made in England, what we'll do with those, they're going to be 100% skin to box made in England. Okay. So what I mean by that is, as with any products, many, many products that you buy these days are made in more than one country. So if you buy a car and it's a German car, the engine might have been made in Spain. The chassis might have been made in France. The, you know, the, the steering might have been made in China. And it's all assembled in one place. And that's the country of origin. With shoes, this has been going on for many, many years where people have been making the upper in China, in India, in Indonesia, wherever, bringing them back. And the rule has always been that if you put the sole on in the UK, you can say they were made in England. So with a Goodyear welted shoe, a good 60-70% of the work is the upper because you've got to cut it, you've got to stitch it, you've got to uh, put the lining in it, you've got to, um, you can then last it you can put the insole on so you can do all of that work and then send it over and put the sole on here and say made in England. And I said, we're not going to do that. That's a way of tricking people. So we're going to do made in England or it's not made in England and it might be Italian or it might be, you know, whatever. Um, and if you go on the website, you can see in the, where we make our shoes or whatever section it is, it tells you what, what which category the shoes are and where they're made. So, and it's been fantastic for us because I actually think uh, shoes that are made in India, I actually think they're better than many of the shoes that are made in the UK. I really do. The quality is amazing. And it's the same leather and what have you. So it's, I think it's a fantastic thing that what we're doing. We're keeping the factory alive and running a thriving factory here. And if you want that, you can absolutely have that. If you want a Grenson shoe that's skin to box made in England, I'm absolutely delighted. Here it is, and that's what it costs. If you want a Grenson shoe and it's been made somewhere else, it's been made in this amazing, incredible handmade factory there, where, by the way, it's more handmade 
in a way than it is in the English factory because there's even less machinery there involved. If you want that, you can have that. Um, and, and it's worked really well for us. And I think our followers um, generally kind of uh, understand that and are quite happy with it and know they've got the choice. I think it comes down to a bit of seeing, I mean, there's what, 200 operations that go into making a pair of shoes and it takes... At least, yeah. I see some factories say that, oh, and it's a process that takes two weeks, sort of trying to indicate that each pair of shoes takes two weeks to make. But it, <laughs> well, it, well, it's really that, how long it takes to go through the process. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah. selling a pair of handmade shoes for, say, three, four hundred pounds, I mean, that, looking objectively at it, it's quite a bargain. Yeah, I I think so, but then I'm selling shoes. So, um, but I think so. If you compare, the only thing I can compare against it, it with the product is other things that you might wear. And when I go into a shop and see a tie that is a hundred pounds, and our shoes are three hundred pounds, when I think that some of the sole leather we use has been tanned for a year. You know, just just that, the sole leather. You know, when I look at all of those processes, the processes in the materials before they even get to our factory, and then all of those, all of those incredible, um, uh, intricate, difficult, tricky processes that go on, and the amount of time the product lasts for, the fact it gets better the more you wear them, all of those things, you put them all together, it really is... Um, it really is a really good value product. Um, and that's why the fact it's a good value product, the, the proof of it, if if you like, is that in all of fashion, footwear is probably the lowest margin of anything um, because people pay less for the shoes than they should do, than they're really worth, if you like. And they'll buy a, a, a tie for 60 quid that took about five minutes to make um or a shirt that takes you know 20 minutes well if that you know um and we'll last them you know the collars will go after after six months and they'll throw it in the bin and they'll pay 100 pounds for that and you think um it, it, it the value in the shoe is incredible really of all shoes by the way i don't just mean high-end goodyear welted of all shoe all shoes are complicated to make and have lots of different processes um so yeah i'm a, i'm i bang the drum for um for for great value <laughs> selling great value products and that's my sales pitch well, and then if you resole it four times after that how good is the value yes. then yeah absolutely i mean we we had one customer who was sent a pair of shoes back and he said um there's a little bit of stitching on the back of the upper the top of the upper that's coming away is there any way you could repair it and he said, oh, and by the way, um, I was given these when I was demobbed from the army in 1946. And I'm like, OK, well, that that is proper. I mean, he didn't pay for those because the government gave them to him. But um, if he had paid for them, <laughs> he'd had them all that time and he'd had them repaired several times. And now that is proper value for money. Um, there are not many products that do that these days. I've always wondered, ever since I saw people at the factory had their personal lasts there, uh, I've got odd feet. Uh, slightly different length, slightly different width. One is very flat. So now that's out for the world to know. 
<laughs> would custom lasts be uh, an option for someone like me, or is it sort of the next level of expense? Um, it, it, it is possible. Uh, we do bespoke, uh, but it is uh, because of the process. So because of the process, it, it, it suddenly makes it a big jump in expense. Um, so I, for people who have difficult feet, if that causes you a problem when you buy shoes, then it's absolutely worth it. And and again, comes back to this word value, you know. So the pair of bespoke shoes won't perform any better than the pair of shoes that were made in the factory that have gone into stock. They won't perform because they're made out of the same materials in the same way, pretty much. Um, but for you there is incredible value in having a pair of shoes that you put on and they fit you like a glove and you feel comfortable every day versus a pair of shoes that every single day when you go walking they hurt you and you don't look forward to going for a long walk or you don't look forward if you miss the bus and you've got to go to the next but you know and it, it constantly plays on your mind that your feet are uncomfortable so it it can be an incredible thing um we we have a service as well. It's uh, we have a service that where you can um, I guess it's like semi bespoke where we can make a pair of shoes just for you, but on an existing last. So you choose one of our existing styles and say, can I have that, but in that color? And can I have different eyelets and a different sole? And we make them up specially for you. That's a lot lot cheaper. And every now and again, we might have somebody who says, my problem is. I'm a size nine on my right foot and a size eight on my left foot. And it's a nightmare. And we say, well, we can make the pair of shoes one nine and one, one eight. And for, for some people that solves the problem. Um, for you, I can't answer that. It sounds like a pair of bespoke shoes might be, might be the answer. Um, but there, it's a beautiful thing, a pair of bespoke shoes. It really is. I can well imagine. Now, uh, Tim, I see we've been going for an hour and a half. Um, yeah, sorry about that. That's entirely fine. Brilliant. Is there anything we haven't discussed or that you would like to mention? No, I don't think so. I think we've we've covered everything. Um, yeah, I think so. I'm I'm sure might be people screaming at the at their at their podcasting, thinking, why didn't they talk about that or this or the other? But um, yeah, no, it's a, a subject I'm passionate about and I love to talk about it. And it, it's a fantastic, wonderful industry. Um, and long may it continue. Does the future look bright for handmade British traditional shoes? Um, I hope so. Uh, I know Grenson's future is bright because um, I know I, I know what we're doing and I know where we're going and and it feels good e- and and. I think the best thing I could say is that the companies that are left are all excellent. If you buy a pair of shoes from any English shoemakers, um, you're, you're doing a good thing because they're well made. And uh, the, the, as I say, the brands that are left, the factories that are left are, are all excellent. And I think the real proof of the pudding is that we've been through the last couple of years, the most unprecedented challenges to a business like ours and all of us have still survived and we've still kept going and for to have a business that makes mainly traditional shoes for wearing 
outside um, to be in a lockdown situation where people are wearing slippers and Uggs and things like that is incredibly challenging. And all the Northampton shoemakers have survived and I hope they will do for a long time. Sounds, uh, sounds good. Something that just struck me, uh, you mentioned there were sort of between eight and ten Northamptonshire factories left. There seems to be a lot more brands, though, that claim to be a Northamptonshire factory. Are these sort yeah. of brands that are using other factories to make their stuff, but trying to sort of look like they are their own factory? Um, there are. There's a whole mix of things. You know, there are there are brands, as in anything, uh, especially across all of fashion. There are brands who imply that they're 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 British, but never actually say it. There are brands who make in England, but don't have their own factory and use use other factories to do it. Which is what I I used to do um, with my own brand. I never ever used to say that it was my factory or imply it was my factory. I would always talk in communications about how my shoes were made in traditional English shoe factories and various different ones. Um, so there are lots of things that people do, but there are, there are only, I mean, you'll know every single shoe factory that is still making shoes and still making shoes with their own brand name on it in their own factory and there are very, very few few left now. So, um, and I think it's great if if people support them and know that and know that they're still making shoes and, and keeping people employed. And at the end of the day, that is kind of what matters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, Tim, this was very enlightening, and I hope uh, it was okay for you too. Yes, I love it. I love your podcast and I love your Instagram. I really enjoy it. And so it's been a pleasure to be part of it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Thank you very much and goodbye. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.